at Psalm chapter 6 this week and for the next two weeks after this we're going to take a break from our series in Matthew and we're going to spend some time um, in the Psalms. It's been said that the rest of the Bible speaks to us and the Psalms speak for us. So as we read uh, Psalm 6, you can decide for yourself if this speaks for you. Psalm 6, starting in verse 1, it reads and says this, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I'm weak. Hear me, Lord, for my bones are shaking. My whole being is shaken with terror. And you, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, rescue me, save me, because of your faithful love. For there is no remembrance of you in death. Who can thank you in shield? I'm weary from my groaning with my tears. I dampen my bed and drench my couch every night. My eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all evildoers. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea for help. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and shake with terror. They will turn back and suddenly be disgraced. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come collectively uh, to claim that we're weak um, and that weakness would be bad news if in the same breath we couldn't claim uh, that we're yours, Father. But we're weak and we're yours, so that's very good news. It's relieving. Uh, Help us to experience that relief and that trust, Father. We ask that you would change our perspective, Father, and that our hope would spring for that while we await you to change our circumstances, the uh, the predicaments that we find ourselves in. Fill us with hope right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take your seats. Misery loves company. How many of y'all heard that? phrase before. Um, I want to clarify, misery is not just like having a bad day, right? So you can't call yourself miserable if you've just had a bad day. Misery is this. Uh, It's not just having a bad day. Misery comes when you find yourself in a state where you stopped expecting good ones. Where you kind of live in this perpetual state of everything being bad. And oftentimes when, we, when, when we've heard that phrase, misery loves company, we tend to think, uh, right, we all know somebody that doesn't seem uh, happy unless somebody else is unhappy. And we see that phrase as a bad thing, but I want you to know, look, misery loves company is more of a statement of fact than it is an insult. It's just saying that when you're miserable, that there's something about being miserable where you don't see a solution present and you just want to make sure that you're not by yourself, right? And so here's the thing about Misery, regardless of what you do, it'll, it will find you. Misery is not a certified letter where it comes to your door and you have to sign for it, right? It's like them Amazon packages now where they like walk up your steps to the front door and they just throw the, the package at the front door. It doesn't matter if you're home or not. It doesn't matter if they got the right address. Eventually, you're going to come out on your front doorstep and there's going to be a cause for you to be absolutely miserable. And here's the worst thing about it. Misery can come because of something that was done to you. It can come with you just living in a broken world where you're a victim of something. Or 
misery can come because of something that you've done and something that you brought on yourself, a mistake that you made that you know that you shouldn't have. Whether it's right, your own guilt or grief that just comes because the world that we live in is broken, right? Misery feels like you're in prison. And regardless of if you've been falsely accused and have been put in jail or you're rightly accused and have been put in jail, the thing that's common is that nobody in jail wants to be in solitary confinement. Nobody wants to be on their own. Misery is so hard because you find yourself uh, not being able to see a way out, right? That when your eyes are full of tears, uh, it's like trying to drive a car with Vaseline smeared on the windshield. You don't need directions. You don't need gas. You have all that you need to move forward, but you just can't see straight. And just a quick word of advice, I know I haven't really started yet, but I just want to apply on the front end. That's why people that are grieving, uh, they don't always need your advice. That advice, it's not that they don't know where to go. They have directions. It's just that it's hard to move forward when things are cloudy. What they need is presence. And the reason why we're here in Psalm uh, 6 is because David, the author, uh, knew a thing or two about grief. He knew a thing or two about misery. Psalm 1-1 starts off, and the first words that you'll read in the Psalms are this, Oh, how happy. So the goal of the Psalms are to help you and I experience happiness and joy here in this life. But that road travels through every human emotion. And so it's not going to jump over misery. It's going to take us right through it. So here's the very, very first point that I want to make as we go to verse 1 through 3. I was an education major in undergrad for a semester, um, and one of the things that I learned there, one of the things that I learned was that uh, the first step in anything has to be an assessment. Where are you? Where are you right now? So before you're trying to teach somebody how to read, you have to know, where they are. Are they in a good place? And I want you to know if you made your way through the doors here and you are miserable, the very first thing that I want you to know is this. Uh, you're in good company. Look at verse 1. David starts off and says this, look, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I'm weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are shaking. My whole being is shaken with terror. And you, Lord, how long? So he starts off in the very first words, or oh, God, don't discipline me in your anger. Don't rebuke me in your wrath. He starts off in the very first thing that he prays to God is, God, don't do something to me. This is not him saying, um, God, don't discipline me, right? The discipline of God, as the Bible talks through, is a testimony of the fact that we're God's kids. If there's some kid that runs around acting a fool, I may think certain things in my head, but I'm not going to snatch them up because they're not my child. But if my child starts to run out here and act a fool, you better believe that I'm going to snatch up Ava. Listen, Sometimes you and I can find ourselves as we go through life and as we find ourselves making mistakes, being involved in sin, doing things that you and I know that we have no business doing, we pray that we wouldn't get caught or that God wouldn't discipline us. But I want you to know this. Look, if you're always getting off the hook, if God is never disciplining you, then what the testimony of Scripture would say is that uh, 
you would have concern, or you should have concern, about whose child that you are. Because every good parent snatches up their kids. David's not saying, God, I haven't done anything wrong. He's just saying, God, I know that I've done things wrong and I've been scared to come to you, but just don't discipline me. Hear this, in your anger or in your wrath, don't lose your temper. If you and I lose our temper, we may put a hole in the wall that we would have to fix up. Do you realize that if an all-powerful God lost his temper one time, things would be done for? So this is somebody knowing that he doesn't have a leg to stand on, knowing that God is always right in his anger and his wrath. He's saying, God, I know that you're going to have to do some things to me, Lord, but just don't do it in your anger or in your wrath. And here's what I love. This text is going to be full of a bunch of sharp turns. Because look here at verse 2. What starts off with, Lord, don't, verse 2 says this, but I want you to do this. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I'm weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are shaking. Verse 3, my whole being is shaken with terror. What you see is that he goes very quickly from this timid approach to God to this bold, God, but I want you to fix me. I want you to do something, and I want you to hear that. Look, look, this is what happens in prayer. Sometimes, but because of our sin, what uh, we're timid to come to God, and it feels like the way that we used to procrastinate with our schoolwork, you know, a paper that you had to write and take care of, and you put it off and put it off and put it off, and then as soon as you start to work on it, you find that it just flows. That's how prayer is. We put it off, put it off, put it off. But as soon as we start, as soon as we come and approach God, do you know what takes place? That little snowball of that first prayer avalanches into praying that God would be gracious, that God would heal. It says, God, don't, don't, don't take this out on me too hard. And then he says, no, no, no. But God, but I want you to heal me. And then verse 3 right here, he looks to himself, and I want you to hear, well, yo, yo, at the end of verse 2, be gracious to me, Lord. As he looks to himself, he says this, be gracious to me, Lord, not because I'm going to try harder, not because I had a reason for the way, for why I did what I did, but he says this, God, be gracious to me because I'm weak. And here's where all prayer begins. Prayer always begins when your personal strength comes to an end. This is why proud people never pray. Because they never see the end of their strength. So they may start off and say, God, be gracious to me. But do you know what they pray? Do you know why? God, be gracious to me. Why? Because in the future, I promise I'm going to do better. God, be gracious to me because in the past, God, I've got a reason why I flew off of the handle. But the people that really know their God say, God, be gracious to me because you know how I am. You know that I'm weak. You know I have nothing to offer. Verse 2, heal me, Lord, for my bones are shaking. Verse 3, my whole being or my soul is shaken with terror. Um, nothing shows your weakness more than when emotional distress causes physical shaking. So it's one thing for somebody to have to get up and give a speech and say, I'm not nervous. It's another thing for them to say that, and you see their knuckles shaking while they hold that microphone. What you're saying is, you, you're saying one thing, but your knuckles are gossiping about how you really feel. That regardless of where you are or who you are, 
or how much strength you think you have or whatever promises that you've made to God that you're going to do better. You find yourself or you have found yourself or you will find yourself in a place where your emotions are going to gossip where you're going to be brought face to face with your weakness. It may be the death of a loved one. It may be the relapsing of a loved one. It may be you sitting with your own guilt. It may be something, but it will be something. And after he looks to himself, here's the next thing that he does. Look, he looks to God and he says this, And you, Lord, how long? It's not even a complete sentence. But look, In the Bible, whenever you see these words, how long, Lord, that is just Bible for somebody lamenting or somebody being frustrated and saying, no, God, how long until you do something? And what you find is that in misery and in grief, the problem is not the weight of the problem, how heavy it is. The problem is the weight, how long you have to wait until God takes that weight off of your shoulders. You, you can sit under a bench press, and there's a weight. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can lift that up and put that back down. But I remember back in school when the coach was like, no, 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 lift it up and hold it there. That's a difference. Listen, and that's what makes problems so hard, because I want you to hear this. We know that people are going to die. But we get mad and say, Lord, how long do I have to carry this grief? It's been years. We know family members are going to relapse. But we sit back and say, God, but how long until they really get better? We know that there are problems in this world, but we sit back and say, God, but how long until you actually come in and do something about it? Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt like you wanted to lodge this big complaint against God, but you've been scared that if I complain to God, that he's going to do something like smite me, that I can't complain or tell God how I feel because he's really going to get mad. This is why I say, if you're miserable, hear this, you are in good company. And I think David starts off saying, God, don't be mad with me, not just because of what he did wrong, but because of the fact that he's getting ready to go in and lodge his complaint and ask God to do things. And he's saying, God, I I don't want you to get mad at me when I speak very candidly about what I want you to do. And I just say all this to help you know, I want you to know that you have permission, y'all. You don't just have permission, but you have a script written for you right here about how to lodge your complaints to, uh, uh, to God. There's freedom. After he takes that assessment, and we are reminded of the fact that if we've ever felt this way, we're in good company. The next thing in verse 4 is we get this. We get a solicitation, right? Or it's asking, right? Turn, Lord. Rescue me. Save me because of your faithful love. For there is no remembrance of you in death. Who can thank you in Sheol? A solicitation is just a request, asking. Um, if, if you drive around and go to certain businesses, what you'll see is a big sign that looks something uh, like this on the screen. No solicitation. And what that is, is there's a business, and they're saying, we're busy, we're trying to do things. Here's what we don't need. We don't need anybody to come around trying to ask us for stuff and to sell us stuff. We're busy. We don't want your requests. In April 2017, there was a man right outside of Fort Worth who put a sign like this in his front lawn, uh, and a salesman came to his front door to solicit or ask him for things. 
Uh, and the man who owned the house was arrested because he pulled out his gun and he shot this guy. Listen, the only reason I bring this up and that sign is because we are here and we are a room full of folks that find ourselves in a church because there may be something inside of us where we would say God loves to hear our prayers, but I think functionally, when it comes to our hard times, you and I tend to act like God has one of these signs on his front door. I'm busy, don't ask me for nothing, don't try to sell me on why you should help me. And I want you to know David brings this up to say, oh, if you're miserable, you're in good company. And the very first thing that you should do after you realize the misery that's inside of you, go right to God. Solicit, act. Look here at verse, verse 4. He starts off and says this, turn, Lord, rescue me, save me because of your faithful love. That word turn is the same word that's used in your Bible for the word repent. What repent means, it's a military term that means about face, to take a 180. So when the Bible says to repent of your sins, it's saying you're headed one way, turn around. And what he's saying is, God, I'm miserable, and part of why I'm miserable is because I feel like you've got your back turned to me. So you know, listen to, the auda to, to his audacity in not asking, but saying, God, turn around. Help me. Rescue. I'm out here all by myself. What you'll also see is that five times in those first four, four verses, he's going to use this word, Lord. But when it's written in all capitals like that in your Bible, it's what's called the transliteration and all that that means. It's the way that the English captures a specific name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh was the <laughs> covenant name of God. It's God saying, yo, yo, listen, if y'all are my people, right, don't call me Mr. God, right? Don't be that formal. Call me by my first name. And what that Yahweh means is, is God saying, I am what I am. And so it's one way of God saying he's absolutely reliable. And it's another way of God saying he doesn't change. So when he says, I am what I am, it could be him saying, um, I am what I always have been, or what I have been is what I will be, or I will be what I am right now. It's God saying that he's constant, and if he's made this promise to be with his people in trouble, David is here praying, and he's saying, God, save me, help me, but he doesn't just tell us that we should call out to God, he tells us how to solicit God to get what you really want and need. And the basis that we appeal to God on is not our goodness, but God's. Good verse 4. Look, God saved me, not because of me, but because of you. God saved me because this is what you do. You always and only save miserable people miserable people that often find themselves in their misery because of what they've done. So I don't have to make all these promises of what I'm going to do. I don't have to plead on the basis of my work. I have to ask God to do what God already wants to do. And there's hope because if I'm asking God to do what he already wants to do, then I can be confident that he's going to do it. Reminding God of his character, of who he is, is the best way for you to build your faith. 
God doesn't forget anything. So when you remind him, it's not like God said, oh, oh yeah, I did write that. When you remind God of who he is, that's your way of reminding you, of you starting to build your faith. And you're reminded that your appeal for help has nothing to do with your goodness, but everything to do with his. And I know we said this same point last week, but as you go through the Bible, this same point is going to be repeated. Do you know why it's going to be repeated? Because you and I tend to forget. Because I spent 20 hours last week, 15 hours, working on a sermon that had this at the main point when we preached Psalm 5. And this week, as I was hit with terrible family news, do you know what I'm tempted to do? I'm tempted to think about all of the reasons why God should answer my cry for help. And so I'm timid when me and Chandra get into it at the front end of the week. And I speak out of pocket and I respond to her in anger. And the next day I get terrible news. And the first thing that I do is I kind of back up and I feel like, all right, Lord, what do I have to do to make things up? And then I can come and pray. How can I ask for help now after I've been this way? But then you read a psalm like this and you realize um, life doesn't really tend to throw problems at you at the most opportune times. Wouldn't it be great if uh, the only times that you really needed God's help is when you were living right? Because then it would be like, oh, Lord, I can go to you. Look, I've done all the things that you've called me to do. Isn't it funny how when you're not living like you should, that your life tends to bottom out and things just come at you from all sides. And it's at those times that you can do one of two things. You can say, God, help me because I'm weak. Save me because of your faithful love. Or you can say, God, Help me, and I promise I'll do better next time. But do you know what that does inside of you? It puts you in a place where you'll call out to God for help when you feel like you're the victim. But when you've done wrong and you've been the victimizer, you're not going to call out to him. And there's going to be things in your own heart and soul that on the inside you're going to say, I know that I should change. And instead of pleading to God on the basis of your weakness and his goodness, you spend time in your own weakness trying to change the things that you can't change, that your weakness has proved you don't have the power to change. But for those of us that are reminded of the fact that God only helps us because of his goodness, then even at times when we are at our worst, the very first place that we go to is to God. And we plead and we ask for him to change us. Do you know why we plead to him on that basis? Because we say, all right, no, God, look, if you save me, this is verse 5, For there's no remembrance of you in death. Who can thank you in Sheol? Uh, The point that he's trying to make is, no, no, God, you created me to worship you. That's what I should do. That's how I should live. And if I'm wiped out, I don't get to do that. And you don't get glory in in that way. Granted, you're going to get glory, but, but God, listen. Let me see if I can illustrate it a better way. Exodus chapter 32. Moses delivers the children of Israel from slavery. 
they worship a golden calf. God comes down to him and says, hey, Moses, I'm going to wipe out everybody and start with you. And Moses says, God, don't be angry for the way that I'm about to come to you. God, would you spare us because we're weak? And Lord, if you wipe us out, all the enemies that were impressed by the way that you flexed your power, do you know what they'll say? They'll say, look at that God. He saved them just so we could kill him himself. So he said, Lord, for your glory and for your goodness, spare us. And what you have is somebody reminding himself of the goodness of God. Listen, businesses do not want solicitation because it is a lose-lose or it's a lose-win. The people who get things from them, they may get what they want, but their employees are distracted and they lose out. Their bottom line is messed up. What David is saying is, no, God, look, if you save me, it's a win-win. That's the thing about mercy, y'all. The giver of mercy and the receiver of mercy both win. The more mercy that God gives out to people that don't deserve it, do you know what that does? It helps us see how good God is. The more mercy that people receive from God, do you know what it does to the receiver? It helps them experience more of God's goodness. So God's saying to everybody that's weak, to everybody that's miserable, you can solicit from him. You can uh, call on him. Basically what he's trying to say and what I've been trying to say for the last 20 minutes is this. Your misery is no match for God's mercy. Your misery is no match for God's mercy. Look, after he prays for, for God to come to him, verse 6 and verse 7 says this. Look, I'm weary from my groaning. With my tears, I dampen my bed. I drench my couch each night. My eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of all my enemies. One of the things that I want to bring out here is look, after he prays for God to help him, you would expect that things turn. You would expect that he would pray for God to help and then problem is, is, is solved. But that's not the case at all. It's only after he prays to God for help that he feels like he can really voice just how bad things are. He finally feels like he has the freedom to continue to let God in and say, God, waterbeds went out of style years ago. But my tears are flooding the one that I have right now. There's no, look, my bed is wet, so I move over to my couch, and my couch is soaked. And the reason why my furniture is damp is because I'm miserable and I'm by myself. I have nobody to catch these tears. I, I bring some of this up to say, and I'm going to just, you know, say this to help us out as we try to walk with folks through grief. Um, you may have experienced similar grief to somebody else, but you have not experienced the same grief that they've had. So one of the things that makes grief hard is because in some sense, even though folks come alongside to help, there are tears that certain folks can't catch. I know you've had a father die, but that's not the same thing as a brother dying. I know that you've lost somebody close to you to cancer, but that's not the same thing as somebody close to you being murdered. I know that you've gone through X, but it's not the same thing that I've gone through. So I do want you to hear this. One of the best things that you can do is not go up to somebody and say, I know exactly how you feel because you, you don't. You have never lost the person that they lost in the way that they lost it. 
You have never experienced the hardship that they have in the way that they've had them. What you can do is lead in and say, I can't imagine how hard that must be. I can do all my best to catch these tears, but I know that there's going to be some tears that I can't catch. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to try to relate to you with my own story. I'm going to be here and sit with you. But if you can't take your problems to God, I will. And I'll remind you of a psalm like this, Psalm 6. And here's what I love. I told you there's all these sharp turns. After David prays and gives this problem to God, look here at verse 8. Depart from me, all evildoers, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea for help. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and shake with terror. They will turn back and suddenly be disgraced. What he says and what he brings up here is that it's okay for him to hope in the Lord now because help is on its way. Verse 8 and verse 9, look. He says, get away from me. And he speaks confidently and he says, look, God's heard my prayers. God's heard my plea. God accepts it. And one thing that he knows is this. Hearing is not the same thing as accepting. Kids tend to make that mistake. So what a kid will do is if they want something from you, and you don't give them what they want, they'll increase their volume because they'll assume that you just didn't hear. They don't have a mindset for, no, 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 I heard you. I, I'm just not going to give you what you want. What he's saying is, look, look, God hasn't just heard this prayer. God accepts it. So much so that in verse 10, Look at the words that he's going to use. In verse 3, he, he said, My soul is so downcast that I'm physically shaking with terror. Verse 10, he says this, All my enemies, every last one of them, will be ashamed and what? Shake with terror. They'll turn back and suddenly be disgraced. Listen, things change for him in an instant. Not because circumstances have changed. So if you go through life and think that the only way that you can find hope or relief from your misery is if the thing that has caused you to be uh, miserable changes, then you're going to live the rest of your life being miserable. Because sometimes things don't change right then and there. But what you have here is somebody who, listen... After he gives his problems to God and is assured that he's heard, things change for him. Do you know why? Because he knows uh, trouble or problems don't have to be fixed in order for us to have joy. Our trouble just needs to be sufficiently threatened. Here's what I mean. If somebody's outside of your house, banging on the door, and you don't know who they are, and you're inside and you're shaking with terror, what's the first thing that you do? Well, there's some of y'all that would go into your house and get a little something for them, but the first thing that you should do is call the cops. You get on the phone, you call the cops, and you hear the words, we're sending somebody in there on their way. You announce and you speak through the front door, I want you to know, I've called the cops, I've been heard, and they're on their way. Now that fear and terror that you had has been transferred into the other person, and often they turn tail and run. Not because anything has physically changed, but because you have a hope that actual help is on the way. That they know that they're, they're outmatched. They don't have the firepower or the authority to sit and to stand. So things change for you with you doing nothing else but crying out for help. Why do I bring that up? 
Because so many times we sit here and, you know, we go through the Word and we talk about what God has done and the God that we've served and we talk about things like prayer and, and we leave and we don't pray because we say things like, man, I really want something more practical, something that I can do, something that I can hold in my hands. And I want you to know there is nothing, absolutely nothing more practical than the hope that would change your perspective on things. Here's what I mean. Drop your, your, your Bible, your phone, if you're Instagram and a tweet, and if I haven't captured your, your attention, that's fine until now, but just drop it right now. What do you have in your hands? Some people would say nothing. And the only reason that you would say that is because you're not drowning in water. What you have in your hands right now feels like nothing, but it's air. It feels empty in your hands, but it's meant to fill up your lungs. If you're drowning, you do not care about the air that's in your hands. You want it in your lungs. And it only feels like nothing because you're used to being fulfilled on the outside and not on the inside. That's what hope is. Hope is like air. And the reason why we think that it's nothing is because we take it for granted as sure as we take the air all around us for granted. God has provided us ample reasons to hope in him. And we take it for granted. But then when we're drowning in our misery... We think that filling up our hands with money is going to be the thing that fills us, and that's not the case. I guarantee you, if you fill up your lungs with physical money, it's harmful to you. If you try to fill up your soul with money, it's harmful to you. If you try to fill up your, your hands with bottles and alcohol to drink your misery away, you may have something here, but do you know what any type of liquid does in your lungs? It'll kill you. You can try to calm the misery of your soul with money, with bottles, with people. And do you know what it'll do? It'll feel like you have something out here, but it'll do something in here. Here's what the hope that God has. The fact that you and I can pray to him for our help and be heard. It may feel like nothing out here because things don't change. But it, but it does something in here. We can be filled and fulfilled on the inside, you and I can leave confident that the Lord has heard and accepted our prayer. How can we be sure of that? David prays this in faith as he looks forward to what he knows God will do. You and I pray this, not just as we look forward, but as we look backwards. The Bible speaks of the Lord Jesus and it refers to him as a friend, and one of the things about friendships when it comes to misery um, is this, is a quote that says this, friendship improves our happiness and abates misery by the doubling of our joy and the dividing of our grief. The Bible is going to refer to the Lord Jesus as a wonderful counselor. What makes counselors so great is not just that they come and give advice. It's not just that they tell you what to do. What makes certain counselors great is the fact that they've been through something like what you've been through, but to a worse de degree. So a few years ago, as I was dealing with the death of my brother and found myself depressed, I saw a counselor. And the first thing that he did was he didn't tell me what I should do. In our very first meeting, he asked me, 
John, what's your trouble? And then the very next words out of his mouth was, let me tell you my story. Rick was a guy that was a pastor. Rick's wife left him, cheated on him with somebody in the church, took him, fled, left him all alone with his two daughters. Uh, The church that he was pastoring at the time was anything but supportive to him. And it nosedived. It blew up. And I was in the 80s. But do you know what? 35 years later, Rick was still standing. He was in the chair sitting across from me with a sense of hope. And I looked at him and I said, my wife is still with me. And as far as I know, the church that I'm at doesn't want to fire me or let me go. I was looking for an amen, but I'm okay. okay. And, uh, And so even though nothing had changed, I left with a sense of hope as I was drawn into the story of a man who suffered worse than I did, but was still standing. I want to tell you of another story about a greater man, and that man is the Lord Jesus, who experienced misery because of wrongs that were done to him, like us, but unlike us, he never should have experienced misery because of anything wrong that he did. Even in experiencing this heartache, do you know what he does? On the eve of his death. He is shaking with terror, crying, sweating, praying that the Lord would hear him. And he brings along his closest friends just to be with him in that time and catch some of the tears. And do you know what he finds? Them sleeping. So he's bearing this guilt and this misery all by himself. And then as he's praying to God, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Knowing Psalm 6, David could stand up and say, enemies, turn tail and run. Jesus gets up from prayer and doesn't see intimidated foes. He sees people coming to him in courage. And they take him and they put him on a cross for our sin. And while David, somebody who's done wrong, can say, God hears me and accepts my plea, the Lord Jesus, who has done no wrong on the cross, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can get why you wouldn't want to hear anybody else's prayer, but God, why me? And do you know why? Because Jesus Right? A good friend will divide our grief, will help us bear that load. Jesus is a better friend. There is no division or splitting it up. I hung out with guys last night. We got wings. They said they were going to cash at me, but they didn't. And so... So that debt is not divided. It all lies on one person. And I want you to hear that. As soon as we're done with church, I'm going to send them invoices so that they can pay me back. Listen, y'all. Jesus is never going to send an invoice. He's never going to require you to pay him back. He's never going to make you feel guilty. He's never going to throw subliminal shots like I just did. We serve a savior that's a better friend that doesn't, that is not interested in dividing grief and misery. He's saying he's willing to take it all on and he has so that you and I can come to the end of a Psalm 6 and say, God, you accept my prayer not because of any resolve that I made to do better, but because of your goodness, not mine. And if that's the case, 
Do you know what we do? Do you know the most practical thing that you can do? Is to remind yourself of this hope. When you are tempted to try to solve the problems of life yourself, when you are tempted to think that it is the insertion of your will and resolve and advice and counsel that's going to lift you out of your misery or somebody else's out of theirs, you come back and you remind yourself, no, no, listen, listen, God's mercy is no match for my misery. You remind God of his goodness. You take your problems to him. And you help escort everybody next to you, everybody that you know, to that same truth. David felt like he could hope in God because help was on the way. You and I can hope in God because help has already come. There is going to be a day. Keith shared this about a week ago with me, where you know, death has a death date. There is a time where death will be no more. Sorrow will be no more. There is a time, and we hold on to hope now, because help has come, and it's on the way. I want you to believe that. And take every one of your problems and every one of your friends' problems to our great friend, the wonderful counselor, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do what we can, that you would bear our problems, change our perspective, help us to leave with hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.